I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Introducing Barker and Stonehouse Garden Furniture. Find inspiration for your outdoor space with our stylish collections of garden furniture and accessories, now with up to 25% off. Visit one of our 11 nationwide stores or find us online at barkerandstonehouse.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the first April edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. And I'm delighted to say spring is definitely in the air. Today, we're debating forcing plants. Is out-of-season performance a boon or a bane to home gardeners? Plus, I'm delighted to reveal the results of a citizen science study of gardeners around the UK to identify the plants that can best withstand the attentions of our four-legged friends, the deer. But first, question time. I'm Jenny Bowden, and I'm part of the gardening advice team based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. One of the benefits of being an RHS member is that you can ask the team any horticultural question for free throughout the year. We get asked about all manner of issues, from choosing plants for dry shade, to growing roses for a wedding, to training grapevines on a balcony. Whatever the issue, we'll try our best to help. So let's join the team to hear some of the queries received in the last few weeks. I'm Lee Hunt and I'm joined by Rebecca Mealy and Jenny Bowden. We have an email from Philip Rogers, uh, who's asking about potatoes in bags. Which varieties do best, please? And where should I put the bags? In sun or shade? Do I need to water? It sounds simple, but I'm a new gardener and I feel very confused. Potatoes in bags is really nice and easy. It's quite a fun thing to do. It's making sure that you don't put too many potatoes in the bag and then the watering is key because you don't want them to dry out but at the same time you don't want to swamp them. It's better to use the early cultivars and these tend to be smaller potatoes and over quickly. So a few of the cultivars that I quite like are Accent, Orla, Winston and Charlotte and they all give you really nice versatile potatoes that are nice in salads. Charlotte makes nice chips by the way. Yeah so depending on the size of your pot so it's one tuber per 30 centimetres So, and then what you do you pop them in as the potato grows you bury it and then you keep watering and feeding and yeah I'd say give it some sunshine but you don't want it to be too baking and in full sun all the time otherwise they might cook in the bag. (laughs) 
it's a good size bag as well, isn't it? It's kind of where you want a good 30 centimetres. They're often round, but kind of a 30 centimetre square in terms of height, width, depth. Yeah. And it could be a pot. It could be a specialist potato bag, any kind of container that's large enough. And you just want something like a multi-purpose compost but, you know, some added John Innes, which is soil-based, will also help buffer the watering a bit. So keep that down. And as they really get into growth, just a tray underneath to hold some water as a reservoir so they don't dry out in the heat of the day. Just all make that little bit of difference and make it a bit easier too. Fiona Shorter from London's written in, I have finally given up with our 13-year-old apple tree. It has reoccurring disease that creates woolly fuzz around the end of the flowers and buds, and they, they turn brown and shrivel. When it does produce a good crop, the apples are horrible and no one eats them, so it must go. Can you recommend a tasty, fast-growing variety to replace it? Not huge, as it's a town garden. Also, what's the best way to get the stump out? And can I plant the new one in the same spot or will that risk the new one contracting the same disease as the old one? There's quite a lot going on in this garden, isn't there? The apples are horrible. There's woolly fuzz and quite a lot to be resolved. I think the woolly fuzz around the end of the flower and fruit buds is probably powdery mildew, which eventually will kill off those tips and they'll turn brown and eventually drop off so it's not related to the fact that when it does produce a crop the apples are horrible it's obviously just a horrible apple so what is the best way to get the stump out so that's the first problem we have it cut down we've got a great big stump what's the best way of getting the stump out ideally if you can digging it all out it's a bit of an effort i mean you might need to get somebody with a winch and winch but as much as that root out as you can get is the best thing and if you do that if you know you're going to be winching it out, then the idea is to leave about three to four foot of the trunk so that you've actually got something to, to yeah, for the winch to get yeah, hold of. leverage um, for um, pulling it out, yeah. I, I guess it depends on access and yeah. the size of the And, and, and what's around the tree as well, because sometimes if it's quite planted up around it, actually removing a stump like that could be a bit of a chore. You can grind out the stump. But again, with that, you have to make sure you're grinding down quite a large amount and, and removing as much of the root as you can. So how would you grind it out? So that would be a job for a tree surgeon and they would have a special machine called a grinder and they're good fun to use. I've used one of those before. And it's got a nice spinny blade that you whiz from one side to the other. And you have to have, obviously, all the protection gear on because they're, they're pretty dangerous. So they need to be handled by a professional. <laughs> So then you'll have a whole load of mixed up sawdust and earth all mixed together. Can you plant directly into that? I think with this, it's worth considering whether you have got another spot, because we do know that these replant disorders, which can potentially affect a new apple if it's put in. It's not really understood what replant disorder is, but we know that often if you take something like an apple tree and plant it in the same situation, it doesn't quite get away. If it's the only location you've got, though, and sometimes our gardens are small and very tight and we don't have the option, then it's to try and improve that soil as much as possible. So really, it's a good one to two buckets full of well-rotted compost or manure dug in per square metre or yard and a good handful of fertiliser as well. So things like bloodfish and bone or grow more seaweed meal. Basically, you want about a handful again per square yard. That should improve the soil. Often, replant disorder is linked to 
poor soil condition and nutrient balance. So that sometimes will get around the issue. So it's worth trying. Okay, so now we've done that. We know how to replant. Which apple should we choose? My One of my favourites, because I've got it, and it's really heavy cropping, really lovely fruit, looks like a proper apple should, red, uh, is red foolstaff. It's a super apple. So largely I can comment on what I grow compared to Egremont russet, which is a lovely apple, but it doesn't do very well on my soil. So it produces rather small apples, not very satisfactory. But any of the ones that have got coxes mixed in with them, coxes yeah. itself is a bit of a, a hard one to grow. It tends to catch everything, all the diseases. So we don't want that. Yeah. But with coxes in the parentage. So I've gone over to one called Sunset, which is a much more reliable cropper and not so disease prone. So if you like coxes, that's a good choice. The final bit of this jigsaw is one that's not too big. Now, we've just mentioned apples. They can be numerous sizes in your garden. And the way that happens is by choosing a rootstock that allows it to grow smaller or bigger. Now, this starts at the small end where it still needs a permanent stake. So this is a rootstock called M27. They all sound like motorways, but M27 is the smallest. And to me, that often, because it needs permanent staking, is a bit too weak. And particularly if you had heavy or poor soil, it's not a good choice. So move up to an M26. And that one, it's going to give you a tree around 10, 12 foot on average, unless it's a very vigorous variety. So something like Bramley, which is known for that, might be bigger. But that's going to give you a tree that's going to look like a tree. Generally speaking, a lot of the branches will be in a pickable height. Even getting on towards um, MM106, that's another one from the Morling research. MM106 is going to give you, especially on a tree that isn't that vigorous, where the top isn't that vigorous, it'll give you a little bit of oomph. We've got an inquiry here from one of our producers, from Alex. He has several peace lilies in his kitchen, which have suddenly turned limp and the leaves are blackened. Do they have a disease or is this a water or temperature issue? Becky, what do you think about Alex's limp peace lilies? Yeah, it sounds like it could be an overwatering issue because they don't like sitting too wet. Temperature can be a, an issue, so it depends if it gets a bit too cold in the kitchen of an evening. And also humidity is the big one. So they like to be just damp, but not sodden in the pot. They're jungle plants, so they do like it nice and, and misty. So if you can, maybe mist around it or have it on a pot with gravel and then that'll evaporate or another tip I, I found out the other day is put shells on the pot around the plants and then put a little bit of water in those and that'll evaporate and then they'll look pretty at the same time. Audrey Manson by email. Black spot on roses. Is there anything I can do about it or is it just a case of pull off the worst leaves and put up with it? Well, the best way is to start the season with a clean slate. So when you're doing your pruning with the roses, it's removing any leaves that have got any sign of black spot on them and also on the stems, because this is one of the things people miss is the overwintering spores on the stems. So they again, they're just black spots on the stems. Once you've done your pruning, put a nice thick layer of mulch around the rose. That'll help suppress any spores that are in the soil, but also the rose will love you to bits for giving it a nice mulch. Then as the season goes on, obviously feed your rose, but don't overfeed the rose because the lush green leaves of roses are more prone to the spots growing on them. You can 
spray them with fungicides six times a year is the what you can do but it's getting into the habit and routine of it sometimes I put up with a little bit but practice good hygiene at the same time and it depends on the year as well we've been getting quite wet Augusts and that's one of the worst things is a wet warm weather in the summertime and some roses are just really really prone to it so a lot of it's in the choice of varieties and um, so ones that are closest to the wild forms are going to be the most resilient so I've got Rosa rugosa and there are cultivars of Rosa rugosa as well like Rosary Delay, Double Blanc de Cuba is another one and they don't get black spot in fact they don't get anything wrong with them in fact I can't stop them growing um, so it might be a little bit too vigorous but the ones that are closest to their wild relations are very sturdy aren't they? They are. Um, and it is that completely opposite end where you'll find things like iceberg, good old traditional variety is often defoliated by black spots. So, yeah, I'd go for things like that. But some of the new sort of more modern hybrids that are coming through are often now very disease resistant as well. So I found things like the Shepherdess and Charles Darwin are all good things that don't really get much black spot at all. The RHS Gardening Advice Team. You can link to more information about all the topics the team discussed and learn how to join the RHS so you can take advantage of the free advice service on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. One of the other benefits of joining is free entry to our four RHS gardens and there are lots of fascinating events for all the family coming up this Easter including our Rhyming Rabbit children's activities, trails, crafts, storytelling and much more, based on the picture book by Julia Donaldson and Lydia Monks. Most activities are free with normal garden entry. And there's plenty for grown-up garden lovers too, including sweet pea workshops at Harlow Carr on the 13th and 14th of April, a palm and cycad trail in the Wisley Glass House, and links to details of all these and more on our podcast page. Now, if you've been listening to our sister programme, The Garden Podcast, which is also free, you may have heard writers Phil Clayton and Melissa Mabbitt debating various thorny plant issues, such as the pros and cons of novelty Christmas plants and begonias, blousy or beautiful. In April's RHS magazine, the hot topic is forced performance, the tactic used by some plant nurseries to increase spring sales by forcing herbs and flowers to perform before they would in nature. We joined Melissa and Phil in the office as they discussed if this is a good thing or a recipe for expensive plant failure. I look back to my early gardening days before I trained as a horticulturalist and what sticks in my mind is you always, even now, see hydrangeas forced to be in full bloom in spring alongside all the spring <laughs> flowering plants. And I went out and bought one and planted one going, oh, this is hardy, a hydrangea's hardy, I'm going to stick that in my garden. You know, in April, all the flowers got frosted off, the leaves were damaged as soon as there was a cold snap. And that was quite a good learning curve for me as a gardener but also you know that plan it probably did recover eventually but that's not really very good in terms of people selling plants selling something that's completely out of season you're absolutely right and you see them don't you in some of the big sheds you see lavenders and mm. rosemaries and lots of italian herbs out on sale in the beginning of march when we can still get some very very cold mm. weather as we all know from last year yeah uh, which can 
finish them. These a lot of these herbs are not bone hardy rosemary and lavenders, particularly yeah. French lavenders. Exactly. Uh, yeah. They certainly will suffer in a very cold yeah. uh, snap. I think it's fine if you're a gardener who's got some experience and you know that that plant needs a bit of protection and pre- mm. you've perhaps got a greenhouse mm. that you can put it in and keep it safe until the end of May. But many gardeners will be going in there and just kind of picking these things up as an impulse buy, put it straight outside. Like you say, it might be labelled as hardy, so they'll assume it will be fine, put it outside in March or early April and it will get frosted. And then you do wonder a little bit cynically if that then means that they're forced to go back to the garden centre and buy more plants to replace well, the things know, that have died. Is, this is the thing, so isn't it? is it a strategy on behalf last of the retailer? Year, last year I saw a whole batch of jasmine polyanthem. So the the jasmine that you often see trained around a hoop as a house plant, but these were mm. on tripods of canes, probably about three feet high, and there must have been maybe 30 or 40 of them outside. Mm. Um, I went before the cold weather and this was must have been about February and then a few weeks later and the whole lot were dead still not a single one had been bored mm. um, and they were retailing at about £16 each and wow. you just think what a terrible terrible yeah. waste of lovely plants but mm. you know not suitable yeah. for planting outside certainly not at that time of the year and, and I guess even that's, then only a very tender you know very sheltered space yeah and I guess that's down to perhaps the actual garden centre itself not looking after its plants yeah. in the best way it should be or the way it should be really but yeah you do see you see things like petunias and things out that have been forced and they might be out on the garden centre benches in April mm. and you think oh, okay as long as we don't get any frost we have a warm spring you get away with it but really to be safe you should be keeping them protected or if you're going to put out early summer bedding that's you know not really properly hardy you need to be thinking about putting a fleece over it don't you at in, the very least yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the thing, really. If you're going to buy them, just be very, very mindful mm. of the fact that they are going to need more care than just simply planting them out and keep an eye on the weather forecast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll end up just buying them again. It costs you twice as much. Melissa Mabbitt and Phil Clayton. You can read the full magazine article they are discussing in April's edition of The Garden, which is delivered free to RHS members. Now, from oh dear to no dear. Deer are one of the pests our advisors receive frequent complaints about. In some areas of the country, the problem is extensive and it seems that deer enjoy eating some plants more than others. We ask people to report the pattern of plant destruction by deer to help us advise gardeners which plants might best survive the attentions of our four-legged visitors and the results were interesting. The first time that we created this page, which used to be a leaflet, was in the 1980s. And it was after a survey was done, just asking people to write letters in to tell us what plants survived deer damage and which ones actually suffered from deer damage. From the letters that came in the 1980s, it was really interesting to look back because um, most of the people had quite big gardens because that was the RHS membership in those days of yore. And it was how poetically people wrote about the deer as well. Although they were a pest to them and they're munching their plants, it was rather a lovely pastoral scene and they, they enjoyed seeing them out there. We're getting reports that deer are coming a lot closer to human habitation. They potter up and down streets these days. The population of deer has actually doubled since 1999 and there are more deer wandering around the UK 
at the moment than there have been in the past a thousand years. There are several reasons for this. Urban areas are pushing out more into the rural areas, so we're going out to meet the deer almost. There is more woodland, more woodland's being planted, so it gives them more cover. Also, um, winter crops are being planted, so they're healthier, they've got more to eat, and so they're also finding extra tasty bonuses in our gardens. We had 185 plants that we actually tested out on people. We, we asked their opinions. There were several categories that we wanted people to vote on. It was whether the plant was untouched, whether it was affected more than twice a year, more than once a year, and then impossible to grow. And types of plants that we looked at were daphnes, bays, uh, different types of thistles. We looked at roses as well, because on the original list, there were certain species of roses that were on the list as being deer resistant. But many people feel that roses, they were, well, top of the menu for deer, to be honest. So we also wanted to test certain species of roses. And vegetables, uh, we looked at vegetables and fruit and bedding plants and bulbs, which were less well reflected in the first list that we had. We found that many of our plants were confirmed as being resistant to deer. There were a few that were a little confusing, like for example, lupins, where we had quite a few accounts of them being, people being unable to grow them at all, and yet other people saying that they were quite resistant, so it was both extremes. Most things were confirmed, but the best thing about it was we were able to put some sort of gauge on it as to your chances of suffering damage, rather than just saying you'll be all right with this plant. Because you'll never be all right with this plant with deer. There is pretty much no 100% proof plant so we maintain that it's deer resistant not deer proof we can never say that at certain times of the year they'll always have a go and so will young deer and new plantings if you've just been to the garden center and planted your garden up they'll notice if more than 65 people grew a particular plant and the chance of it being eaten was less than 20%, then it gets highlighted on our list. And so you will know that it's not dead cert, but you've got a fairly good chance of it surviving damage by deer. And I have to report that roses completely went off the list. We had Rosa rugosa on there previously, which I find to be quite deer-resistant in my garden, but according to our survey, it just wasn't quite in there. Things that we have got in there are Daphne, rhubarb is pretty resistant, uh, the buddleias are wonderful, the globe thistle is good, for example. Also, we established things that you really mustn't put in your garden if you have deer visiting, and most of them are real classics, like tulips, most of the species of roses, hardy geraniums to be avoided, runner beans, raspberries, the list goes on. But really, the only true way 
to protect your garden is to protect all new plants with netting until they're established. A little bit of protection may come if you plant a little bit closer to your house, your gems, but again, it's not foolproof at all. So deer fencing at the end of the day is going to be the most reliable means of keeping the deer from your garden. I'm afraid that's all we have time for for today. We'll be back soon when we'll be reporting from the RHS Flower Show Cardiff. Until then, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all the podcast team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.